Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now for the word of the Lord. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Before Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place, place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. I just thought maybe we could sit for a while on what we just heard and what was shared. Uh, it's incredible what God is doing, and I praise God for what he's doing, especially through you, uh, Pastor Rick and Gigi. Praise God for his work. And um, let's continue to pray and support them in whatever way we can, whatever way God allows us to. Um, man, there's just some incredible work. And uh, I, every time he was going through that slide, I was just thinking, God is so good. God is so good. And even through the hard times, God gives us hope that we can um, place our hope in him. And his hope doesn't fail. And he will see you through. So praise God for that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, maybe we could just sit on that before we start. But um, <clears throat> we don't have all day. Like in the old days, uh, I think I mentioned it last week. You know, Justin Martyr would say, we just read the word until we couldn't anymore. <laughs> and that, that, that's the dream, right? That's the dream for people just to come together and read the word of God and just be like, wow, okay, is there more? <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is not going to happen today. But um, that's a dream, though. But uh, we're going through certain missives, and I just wanted to uh, share that if you do have questions, even from last week, write it down. And um, if I can't answer it, I will. And, but we can share that together, even from last week. And the same thing is for next week as well. If next week, if you have a question about anything that was said this week, please do write it down, and then we'll share it, and then we'll ask. Uh, so before we start, let's pray one more time. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word. And give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. 
Make us hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. And aid your servant in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So this is our second week of the missives. Before we go into Matthew and before I go really into it, I just wanted to share, I said I would share a book because these talks cannot be exhaustive. I wish they could, but in a span of less than an hour, there's only so much you could go through. So I'm just going to hit some points. And if you have any questions in the Q&A, please do ask. Uh, but the book I wanted to recommend today is, if we could show that first picture, it's called God's Good Design. It's by Claire Smith. It's quite an excellent book, and she just goes straight through the Bible, um, and she exegetes passages, a wonderful teacher, and I think it's a wonderful book if you are interested into going further of what we're going to talk about today. And thank you for the picture. I also have uh, two resources here to my left and your right. Up in the front, there are 50 copies of uh, the book, Can I Trust the Bible? This is from last week, and it's first come, first serve, so take and if we run out don't worry we'll order some more and there's also another printout and it's a transcript from a talk by sam allenberry and the talk is called is god anti-gay is god anti-gay and it's a talk by sam allenberry i want you to pick it up he has a great book out too that you can read but you can first read his uh talk and all these people that we're going to learn about today is um, or that I'm mentioning today isn't just theoretical. It's not just, I think this is the right way, so that's what it is. These are people that have gone through and lived experientially exactly what we are going to talk about today. And so I hope that you take me up on it, read those books, pick up these books, and especially pick up Claire Smith's book, God's Good Design. Uh, on May 1st, a New York Times article came out, and it was about uh, transgender people in the Olympics. And you may have heard something about that. And so the, the Olympic Committee had to rule if, whether some people can run for, let's say, women's Olympics or not. This is a very, very hot topic, a hot button topic for today, I mean, in today's day. And this is uh, actually something that we're going to have to face, especially with the Olympics coming up in 2020 and things of that nature. Um, you know, who can run for what race? You know, can this person run in the women's race, or can this person run in that race, or participate in this uh, in this sport? And so, <clears throat> this is from Professor Dorianne Lam Lambellet Coleman. Uh, she's a law professor at Duke, and she also is an uh, eight, elite 800-meter runner in the 1980s. And this is what she, she wrote, um, or she said, Gender study folks have spent the last 20 years deconstructing sex. And all of a sudden, they're facing an institution with an entirely opposite story. And she comes to this question that we also face, all of us face. And she goes, we have to ask. Is respecting gender identity more important or seeing female bodies on the podium more important? This is what she said. 
We have to ask, is respecting gender identity more important or seeing female bodies on the podium more important? I think there's a bigger question that immediately comes to my mind, and it's when did gender become so complex? And then it goes on to the question, why is marriage so hard? I would tell people, and people would ask, oh, what are you, gonna, what are you preaching on? And I'd say, oh, you know, this week is an exciting week because I'm going to preach on uh, marriage and the difference between a man and a woman and everybody. 100% like, oh, uh, good luck with that one, right? <laughs> Wouldn't want to be in your shoes. And I said, yeah, that's the wisdom of many pastors. When they come to a difficult thing, they invite guest preachers. And it's like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> like, this is where you invite guest preachers so they can hate on him and not you. But anyway, the question is, why is marriage so hard? And here's a bigger question that I have come across in my studies and when people counsel people that are married. Why is it that if you ask people that are married, why is it if you ask people who are married, would you marry the same person again if you could marry them again? Almost everybody says what? They say no. What's going on? Why is it that almost everybody would say no? And I'm sure the couples here will turn to each other like, baby, I would still pick you. <laughs> but I'm telling you, the answer is no. This is, this is time and time again. Counselors are coming up with this, and we are seeing a breakdown of this institution. So the question, even before I go through what is male and female and why is it important, it's what's marriage? What's marriage? And why do Christians have such a narrow view on marriage? What is marriage? And why do Christians have such a narrow view on marriage? A lot of people knew that I would be speaking on this, and some of you knew, and you already assumed that I would be talking about these things. And let me tell you, may the Spirit of God just alleviate any anxiety right now. Because what we want to do is we want to go through very basic stuff. So this is this is this isn't stuff that I have not preached before. I have preached on this three years ago when I did Genesis, preaching on it again because I feel like this is something we need to hear again. What is marriage? Why do Christians have such a narrow view on marriage? So in the end, we're talking about worldview. Worldview. Every single worldview. But the way you see the world, right, has four inescapable questions. Every single worldview has four inescapable, whatever, wherever you are lining up saying, I'm in this camp, or I'm going to be in that camp, or I believe what they, they're, they're saying about this, whatever worldview that you are a part of, you have to ask these four inescapable questions. And they are, first, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Second is, what's gone wrong in the cosmos? What's gone wrong? And third, is there any hope? And fourth, how will it all end? Wherever you're standing on whatever, you, you, you may think this whole thing that I'm going to talk about marriage is like, oh, this is a small part, but it's a worldview, and I want to ask, 
Every single worldview that you will subscribe to will ask these four questions, or you have to ask it. Why is there something rather than nothing? What's gone wrong? Is there any hope? And how is it going to end if you continue on the trajectory that you are going? <clears throat> I had this talk with uh, someone in Japan, and um, I asked him, he's this Japanese man, and I asked him if he liked physics. And then we proceeded to have a conversation on string theory and uh, super string theory and space time and Einstein's general theory of relativity and that it doesn't work on Big Bang and black holes, which you all know, because the 93 miles away from the sun, like how does gravity still have a force on the Earth um, when there's nothing in between? And then, you know, Einstein would come up together with this uh, theory. Yeah, you're all with me, right? And so we were having this conversation, and I told him that none of these theories actually, and this is all, you know, this is a pseudophysics, and I'm no expert, but this, these are things like, no matter what field you go into, if the layperson can't understand or appreciate it, that's not really a good field. So even physics or pseudophysics, whatever you want to call it, when we see these things happen, like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And I, and I was sharing with him, actually, none of these theories go against what the Bible says. And in fact, studying the Bible will show that the Bible has stood the test of time, even though we make scientific discoveries. And he thought that was fascinating, and we started to have a conversation. Why is that relevant? Or why am I telling you this? Why is this relevant? Because one way or another, we adopt a worldview. We adopt a worldview. What then is the Christian worldview? And for that, we need to turn to page one, line one, what the Bible says. And it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Here in the first line, the primary character of the Bible emerges. And guess what? It's not us. The Bible isn't primarily about us. It's right there on page one, line one. In the beginning, God. Why is this important? Because if we think this whole life, this whole world is about us then we are in for a huge disappointment. We'll start reading into the word and think, oh, David, that's me. Abraham, that's me, which to me is a bit funny because are you going to tell me there are two billion Davids in the world and everyone gets to kill their own Goliath because Jesus really died so we could succeed in the world. And by succeed, we mean, of course, rich. Jesus died so we could be rich. All right, all right. Uh, we'll be a little more humble than that. Um, at least drive a decent car. Have a nice house in a decent neighborhood. 2.3 kids. What about the people who don't have this? They must have had little faith. And Jesus to rebuke that. Yes. Because that's why, and I'm being sarcastic here, because that's why Peter died crucified upside down. James died because they stoned him to death. Paul was beheaded. Andrew and Philip were crucified. Thomas was run through with spears. People were torn apart, stabbed, beaten. And this has to confuse you. It doesn't make sense because if the closest people to Jesus 
did not get married, have 2.3 kids, live in a nice house, drive a nice car. Why are we correlating these things to our faith? So if we want to get our identity straight, we must get line one of the Bible straight. In the beginning, God. And if you get this right, then you'll get you right. And we'll get to what I said we'd get to soon. What did God do in the beginning? He created the heavens and the earth. This poetic structure is mind-blowing. Before there was anything, there was God. This book is about him. You want to know who you are. The greatest question to plague all of humanity, he starts by showing us who he is. And what does God do? He creates. And what does he create? He creates order. There is an order to creation. There is a first, there is a second, there is a third, and so on. And here's a more intriguing thing about the order of creation. If you're looking at Genesis 1 or if you know Genesis 1, in perfect poetic prose, Genesis 1 states this, the heavens and the earth, right? Light and darkness, night and day, waters and the sky, land and sea, vegetation and fruit, the greater light and the lesser light, which was the sun and the moon. And every juncture of this binary order that God is putting forth, he says something, that it was good. That it was good. And at the end of chapter 1, God does this. He creates man, male and female. This is what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And at the end of this juncture, what does the Bible say? It was very good. Do you want to know why your life is precious? Why every single life is precious? Because we are created in the image of God. That's where your worth comes from. It comes from God. So even if you only get to chapter 1, how can you ask? And we're going to go through marriage and male and female. How can you ask who has more intrinsic worth? Who's better? Why is there a battle between males and females and plus? How can we ask that? We're made in the image of God. When it comes to man, all of humanity, where does our worth come from at the very core of your identity? What is your value? Every single life has the imprint of their maker. It's life and it is very good. And we have to start there. I can't go on to page two. None of us can if we don't get page one right we have to start there. Creation order reflects the character of the creator. The fact that God created us male and uh, female reflects his creative order. God is a God of order. He takes chaos and orders it, but it goes even further than that. Creation ex nihilo means creation out of nothing. Out of nothing, creation. That's God. And if chapter 1 was a big overview of creation, in chapter 2 we get to zoom in on the more specific details of this order. 
We can call this the nitty gritty. In chapter two, who does God create first? Man. Again, this has nothing to do with worth, it has everything to do with order, because some have used this and abused this to argue that men are positioned better in whatever way because they were created first. This is faulty logic. God created frogs before men and woman after man. By that same logic, frogs are better. The same logic, if we use this logic to say man is better, that's faulty. If we use that logic, we would have to say women are better. But they are not better. Calm down. They're not better. We are equal, equal in value. The dignity that we have, that we all have, is because we are created in the image of God. So thank God for chapter one. (laughs) Anyway, but we are equal value. So what happens after God creates the man first? God takes him. We read this. God takes the man, puts him in the Garden of Eden to do what? Work it and keep it. To grow it and maintain it. To be healthy. To make his creation healthy. That's put in charge of the man. But not only that, he gives Adam this commandment. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This isn't random. This is incredibly important that we pay attention here. Two things are given charge to Adam. But here's what God says after. For the first time in the creation account, there is something not good. This is what the Bible said. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So does he create Eve right away? No, he doesn't. We've read it. What happens first? God parades every creature in front of Adam so that he can name them. Why does he do that? Because Adam also has to recognize it's not good that I'm alone. So imagine this. There's all of creation. Here you are. And God is parading so that you can name them. You see the horse. like, this horse is amazing. You know what? I could ride this horse. I could go faster than I could have ever gone. And then he goes to the dog. And the dog's like, this is amazing. He licks me, wakes me up. And then I could try to ride him like a horse, but he hates it. But he fetches me my paper. This is amazing. There's this alligator. And when the waves come, I can surf on him like a surfboard. All right, this is extra. This is not in the Bible, but this is just my imagination. He's having a blast, right? But he's still alone. For Adam, it says in the Bible, there was not found a helper fit for him. So he gets to be put in a deep sleep. Anesthesia is administered. And the first great surgery takes place. And the rib that God takes out of the man, he makes a woman with. And when the man wakes up, God brings the woman to him and he instantly knows. 
He saw every creature that was made. But when he sees the woman, he instantly knows, this is what I was waiting for. And he breaks out into a literal song. This at last is the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He goes, woo-hoo, and he loves it. And I wish I could capture probably what he said. That was not, he was probably way more excited. Matthew Henry would write this, and again, this is extra biblical, this is not Bible, but he would write this in his imagination, that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side so that she would be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. If you listen to my Genesis 1, 2, 3 sermon, this probably should ring a bell, but we need to review this again, I think, today. And it's written afterwards, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Adam is the head, Eve is the helper, and this is what you may have classically heard this called. Adam was first, so he was given the responsibility and commandment. Eve was created because Adam could not do it alone. So this is why the Bible uses the word helper, or the exact Hebrew word is azer. But helper or azer is not the same, is not the same term as a servant or someone lower in status. Again, we have to continue to go back to Genesis chapter 1. They are equal in the image of God. So what is Azer? Azer is used 21 times in the Bible, twice here for helper, but 21 times in the Bible. And every single time it's used, Azer is referred to God. God. Exodus 18.4 Eliezer, Moses names his son Eliezer, Eli meaning God, Azer meaning helper, which means God is my helper. Deuteronomy 33, three times it comes out, blessed are you Israel who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and Azer, helper and glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and we will tread on the heights. Even in the Psalms it says, I am poor and needed. Hasten to me, O God, you are my help. My Azer and my deliverer, O oh Lord, do not delay. Hosea 13, 9, you are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper, Azer. If anything, Azer isn't anyone lower, but Azer is someone better. Again, thank God for chapter 1. We are equal, equal, okay? What is headship then? This is what Claire Smith uh, defines in her book. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. In the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Why is sexual distinction important? Our sexual identity defines who we are, why we are here, and why and how God calls us to serve Him. Our sexual identities define who we are, why we are here, why we are here, and how God calls us to serve Him. And this is a great paradox. This is something that we need to study and then we need to grow in. Because number one, there is equality 
of the sexes as God's image bearers and vice rulers on earth. There's equality in, in the sexes as God's image bearers and vice rulers here on earth. But number two, in his ordering, he created male as head and female as Azer, helper. In this ordering, the roles are not reversible and not interchangeable. Through creation order, we actually see a magnificent dance that is created between a man and a woman. I want to take a quick break here and I want to give a word to the unmarried. Those who have never been married, uh, those widowed, and those who are now divorced. Genesis 2 introduces the first husband and wife, but it introduces the first man and woman. That is, we do not have to be married to experience the good that is shown in Genesis 1 and 2. The man's problem wasn't his singleness. It was his solitude. He was alone, not unmarried. And look again. Look again at Jesus. Look again at the disciples. The dance that we see here, we all experience in varying degrees of intimacy between men and women, parents, siblings, friends, coworkers, people in the church, everywhere we go. And while the most intimate expression of that dance is shown in marriage, none of us are excluded from this great dance. So why would some be so passionately against this order? One very real reason is the abuse of male domination and its assertion in the name of male headship. And I gotta say, anything can be abused and everything has been abused. Anything can be abused and everything has been abused. And especially this doctrine in particular has been egregiously abused. It's been used to demean, degrade, and strip other God's image bearers of their true honor and dignity. Do you want to know what true headship looks like? Then look at Ephesians 5. Treat your wives like Christ treated the church. Look at Christ. And some may claim that because it's been so abused, we need to get rid of this idea of headship altogether. And I'll entertain that. Okay, but with what? If this is God's created order, what are you going to replace it with? And understanding this will help you in understanding the next chapter that follows. Also, understanding the, the Bible, it continues on, always references back to this creation order. We see this literally in Jesus' words too. This is the very good order of marriage that God created, and it is narrow. Why is it so narrow? You know, my father-in-law is a jewel setter or a gem cutter. He cuts diamonds or sets diamonds, and it's very precise work because it's delicate, because it's beautiful. The more delicate and beautiful, the more precise your work has to be. And Jesus reiterates this. Genesis, and we see how he handles it accordingly, and we're going to go through it in Matthew. He does it in Matthew three times. It goes back to Genesis on marriage. But in, in, even in chapter 19, the Pharisees come up to him to test him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They wanted to trip him up. And then this is how he answers. Have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his mother and his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus points back to creation order. And you might be like, oh, that's chapter one. I, I just want you to know chapter one, chapter two didn't exist until uh, modern times. There were no chapters. It was just one big, one big book. Um, and then he goes, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What? Therefore, God has joined together. Let not man separate. And they were dumbfounded. They thought they could get him. Like, are you for divorce or are you against divorce? Because if you are for divorce, you could be like, that's not what God says. And if you're against divorce, it's like, Jesus, you got to get with the times. Today, we could do whatever we want. There's freedom. And then Jesus answers this way. He points back to creative order. And then they're dumbfounded. Jesus sets the bar so high and so narrow that his disciples go after him and go so Maybe we shouldn't marry. After he talks about marriage, Jesus' disciples go, so maybe we shouldn't marry. You know, pastors must have come across this thought at least once when we're doing a marriage ceremony. Like, are we doing anything wrong? Because Jesus preaches on marriage, and his disciples go, maybe I shouldn't marry. Other pastors preach on marriage, and everybody's like, come on, end it so we can party. Some food for thought, I think. With perfection. And very goodness, this is how chapter 2 ends with the verse, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Meaning they loved it. They loved it. They not only loved each other, but they loved life. This is the way it's supposed to be. And they were able to fully enjoy each other, not ashamed. And I got to say, when the Bible was written, there weren't chapters or verses or even headings that you may see when you read this. It was meant to be read through. And we know that this isn't the end because the story continues. It isn't happily ever after because the story continues. And it goes, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, what just happened here? The villain shows up, and it says he's more crafty than what you would normally expect. But who does he go to first? Not the man, but he goes to the woman, and he uses his crafty tactics. Did God really say? This chapter is one of the most crucial chapters in the Bible because if we don't get this, we'll still be asking why is there so much pain in the world right now? And the word says, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Satan disguised as a serpent tests Eve. Did God actually say and completely distorts the command given to Adam? It's like if your mom said, don't eat candy before dinner. And Satan goes to the kid and goes, did mom really say you can't eat any food at all? 
And you're like, so what? What does that have to do with anything? But that's literally what's being shown here. Excuse me. That's literally what's being shown here. I'm getting excited. Hold on. Let me get this water. <laughs> ah. So let's, uh, let's put the command of how Eve responded uh, side by side. Let's put the command and how Eve responded side by side. This is the command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There's emphasis here. There's joy here. There's freedom here. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Let's see her response. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Something is being lost. It's not just in translation. It's not just in being in communication. Something is being lost. And you're just like, mm, that's not exactly what God said. There's something being lost. And this is why every nuance, every single word, we pick at it because they're there for a reason. There's a difference in tone here. What's missing? Surely, an emphatic, joyful freedom of eating anything to, I guess, I, I guess we can eat it. I guess we can eat it. Let's, let's go to the second part. I just split it up into two. What's the command? But... Of the tree of knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Verses, this is what Eve said. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now we are really going away from what God actually said. There's a lot of, not. I don't know what happened, and I am not going to... Um, Pose any kind of theory, this is what I think happened. The Bible doesn't say. You know, you might be thinking, well, Adam didn't tell her the right rules. Adam's an idiot. Or you might be thinking, Eve was being manipulative and she just wanted to do whatever she wanted to do. I'm not going to say any of that. It's not, it doesn't say. What we do know is exactly what Eve said and what the command was. Again, the emphatic joy of freedom and the seriousness of the commandment is lost in Eve's explanation. And you have to wonder why, but the Bible doesn't get into it. It doesn't say. And so I shan't either. Satan jumps on the weakness of her understanding and completely negates God's command. And this is what he says, you will not surely die. God knows that this is good. He just wants to keep it from you. Your mom doesn't know. Candy's so good. Just eat it. She just doesn't want you to be happy. And so this is what the Bible says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is infuriating to, to everybody. You should just be infuriated. It doesn't matter where you are. This is, this is infuriating, but this is what happened. Here's what it doesn't say. He, it doesn't say she took some, ate it. Her husband, who was also with her, also took some and ate it. It doesn't say that. It says she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Why is it nuanced this way? And if you understand chapter 2, you can understand this. She usurped the headship given to Adam, and she led the way to sin. Adam, who looks like he was right next to her when this happened, passively forsook this responsibility. 
Abuse of male headship isn't only male domination, it's passive abandonment. And this is, I think, what we see more of today in our day. Abuse of male headship isn't only male domination, it's passive abandonment. I see the latter way more in today's society, and this is exactly what Adam did. And then like the perfect movie scene leading to the crux of the crisis in the plot, God just so happens to be walking in the garden. And when God calls them into account, who does he call? He calls Adam. Praise the Lord for you, Gonzai. He calls the man. And he goes, what did you do? And Adam doesn't lie, but he cowers. This self-serving, face-saving hypocrisy is what we all universally find despicable. You want to create a villain in a K-drama that everyone hates? Make him or her like this. But this shows us that God held Adam to the final responsibility for what happened to Eve. When God turns to Eve, she can only bow her head in shame and admit she was deceived by the serpent. The serpent, when he wants to tempt humanity, who did he go to first? And when God calls humanity, who does he put to account first? This shows that this we need to understand one, two, three, all these chapters. In fact, I would continue going, just read the whole Bible. That's what we do for the rest of our days. Let's continue to read the Bible because then the curse of death ensues. God shows them what their disobedience will bring on to both of them. This is a TLDR because we don't have that much time. Men and women will be confused. This is what it means. Men and women will be confused for as long as they live and until they die. But there's a line here that we can't miss. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he goes like this. But I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is going to be a new head. That's going to come. And he's going to crush you. And Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he puts creation border back again the way it's supposed to be. And he comes to take on the sins of the world. And John sees Jesus from far away. And he can't help but to exclaim, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what we were waiting for. Lives the, exactly the way we were meant to live perfectly. And, and he lives this way. And he, he lives in a way people don't even understand, but it's perfect and he dies the death that we were meant to die completely he lives exactly the way we were meant to live perfectly and he dies the death we were meant to die completely in doing this he crushes the serpent's head and defeats sin forever so now in Jesus Christ we can enjoy God and live for him forever this is what we mean by saying this is your good and perfect will. In the beginning, I, I, I kind of gave you a, a nerd Easter egg about, you know, the Big Bang and the black holes where, um, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity doesn't actually pan out. This is who Jesus says. Jesus comes and he says this, I am the beginning and the end. This is what we can't figure out. 
And Jesus says, I am the beginning and the end. He was there before the Big Bang, and he exists outside of a black hole. He is the equation that physicists cannot figure out because he has revealed himself to us. And when you place your trust in him, he calls you his own, and he sets you right again. And you can live now as you were made to live in eternity. And you might be thinking, wait, wait, I thought, I thought the title of this was The Good Marriage. What is all this about? All this marriage and the order of marriage, why? We didn't know why. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of this dance that we're supposed to do? Jesus starts the church, and he calls the church his bride. That's the reason why it's so narrow. The real reason why it's so narrow is because Jesus made this perfect, perfect picture. And he's showing us the reason why all this is taking place is because it ultimately points to our union with Jesus Christ. Marriage, in the end, isn't about you. Whether you get married or not, whether you are married now or whether you're widowed or divorced or whether you're wondering if you're going to get married, whether you're married and you really like, I agree with you. I wouldn't marry the same person again. Shh, keep that to you. All that, whether, whatever it is, it's not you. It's pointing to something incredibly beautiful beyond you. And it points to God. And God is showing us that it points to our union with Christ. That's the beautiful marriage. We get to be with Jesus for all eternity. That's amazing. Every single mystery that we're not sure, maybe we won't know it forever, but man, I'm not sure exactly why I'm this way, slowly begins to unravel. And we see that in Jesus Christ, we become more full and more whole. It's not about me having 2.3 kids or a house, but I have so much joy that even if I were to be crucified upside down, that is a joyful walk I get to go because nothing Nothing can take me away from Christ now. Nothing can take me away from God's love now because Jesus Christ shows it to us himself here on this earth by living perfectly, dying completely, and he has risen again, and that's who we praise. That's who we worship. My friends, marriage points to something so beautiful, and I hope that in this church we can reflect on it and the beauty of Christ next week when we talk about the church and the bride, right? But we will reflect on it. And this is so good, guys. This is so good. And hope that we can continue to meditate on it, pray about it, and really enjoy what God has created for us. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the beginning and the end. Before there was anything you. And after everything, you. And Lord, for whatever reason, you chose us to be your children. And if we place our faith in your saving work, if we place our trust in you, your promise is that you will hold us. And if you hold us, who can ever pry us from your hand? Increase our faith. Help us to walk 
and become more like you as we study you, find you more beautiful, as we worship you, oh God, give you all the glory. Let's take this time to pray. Now, I don't know where you are in your life, uh, what life stage you are in, but no matter what life stage you are in, God is calling you to submit yourself to him because it is a good and wonderful design. It is a good will. So praising him, trusting in him, I pray that you can walk and be like Christ as he desires you to be. Let's pray.